The Secret Lives of Spiders. How do they attract a mate? Does size really matter? What is a spider's favorite flower? Today on Radio Bio, we talk with Marie-Claire Chiellini about sexual dimorphism and how it relates to evolution. Don't know much biology. Welcome to Radio Bio. I'm Kinsey Brock. I'm Jackie Shea, and today we're sitting with an integrative biologist who studies spiders. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you work. My name is Marie-Claire Kellini. I am a PhD and currently a President's Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of California, Merced. I am an integrative organismal biologist, which is a long way to say that I like to study animals from different angles. What, kind, what does angles mean? Like... Angles, I mean, I like to look at their behavior, I like to look at their morphology, I like to understand how did they evolve and how does their basic physiology relate to all of these things. So I really like to go from the broader, for example, an entire family of animals, all the way to the really small details of their physiology to understand how and why do they look the way they do. What are some of the questions that you're interested in? Uh, The main question... Central focus of my own research is the evolution of sexual dimorphism. And sexual dimorphism is basically any difference in morphology or behavior between the females and males of a single species. What I tend to focus more often on is differences in size, but it can also be, for example, the feathers of a peacock are one of the classic examples of sexual dimorphism, or the mane of a lion, or actually one of my main study system, spiders, where the males tend to be really small and the females really large. But sexual dimorphism is really everywhere. I mean, humans have sexual Mm -hmm. dimorphism. Mm -hmm. Any possible animal species you can think of have some degree of sexual dimorphism. So I think it's just fascinating that we have this characteristic that is present all around us in all the species that we know of, basically, that within one species, even sometimes within a single family, you have males and females that can look drastically different, even though they are genetically very similar. So looking at how different organisms in their sex are actually different sizes, I mean, that's pretty interesting and really unique. What kind of led you to study something like that? You know, why are you interested in this area? I started doing research very young as an undergrad, kind of by accident. I was very outdoorsy and I loved hiking and I loved spelunking. And I had a professor at the university who happened to study arachnids from caves. And I mentioned to him that, oh, one day perhaps, who knows, I may join your lab because I really like caves. And he was like, wait, you have experience in spelunking? You need to join my lab now because that is actually not <laughs> something you come across every day. Well, also, I mean, dark spaces, small spaces and spiders, I imagine they have some difficulty recruiting yeah. students to <laughs> they, want to they, do those things. They often did. Yeah, especially... Actually, I think the small spaces is the, the the big problem there. A lot of people were just like, I am not getting into those caves. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, sure. Sounds Sign me super up. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I joined his lab as a freshman, actually. And I started following his PhD students around. And then I started doing my own research project. And I was immediately sure that I wanted to study animal behavior. And I wanted to study something related to reproduction. 
And so I did a lot of research during my undergrad on that. Uh, I actually studied a species that have a pretty marked female-male dimorphism. That wasn't the focus of my research at the time. But I continued studying animal behavior. I did my master's with um, parental care in another species where the males are very different from the females. Um, And then when I started doing my PhD, I I came to the U.S. I changed from the arachnids I was studying that were harvestmen that are not quite spiders. I actually changed to real spiders. And it took me a long time to zoom in in the question that I actually wanted to answer. I had fallen in love with a study system and I must have changed the main question of my dissertation, I don't know, seven times over the course of my first two years. And what study system was that? These were crab spiders. Uh, it's a species that is called Mechaphysa cellar, which is the swift crab spider. Uh, <laughs> and they are, they are really charismatic little guys. Um, the females are probably about one to maximum one and a half centimeters in like total body length from the, the bottom of their, of their belly or their, their bum, if you want, to the top of their head. Mm-hmm. And the males are about half that size. So they're really tiny. They're super colorful. They just sit on top of flowers and prey on pollinators. And it was kind of love at first sight when I saw them. I did what everyone says you should not do. I decided that I wanted to work with them. And I would think of a question that I could do with them instead of (laughs) thinking first of a question and then of a system. And so over those those first two years that are already so hard and confusing as a young foreign PhD student, I just kept changing my question all the time and nothing worked and nothing seemed to be promising. And I was having a hard time figuring out what was I going to do with those little guys. And one day it just completely, literally, not literally, but almost, hit me in the face. I mean, they were, these females were twice the size of males. Through my quest for the perfect question, I had already figured out that none of the classic reasons behind extreme sexual size dimorphism in spiders seem to explain their difference in size. Think of the black widow, for example. The males are much smaller than the females. But the males die after their very first copulation. They only mate once. So they only get one chance at reproducing. So they don't really have to be big. They are quite literally little bags of sperm with legs that have to be able to walk around and find a female. And then that's it. They'll die anyways. Anything more than that is kind of a waste of energy. Males of my species actually do get to reproduce more than once. So that explanation did not apply to them. So in my species, Mechaphysa cellar, mm-hmm. all of these classic explanations didn't seem to apply to why were the males so different from the females. And then I realized that instead of thinking of some far-fetched question that I had no real interest in pursuing, that is what was really puzzling me. It was, why are they so different? And so I started to look at that question. Why are they so different from... Again, multiple angles, looking at their evolution, looking at their physiology, looking at their development, and also looking at their behavior. So it was kind of a windy road that took me to studying sexual size dimorphism. Now I'm actually studying it in lizards. So I I actually moved from my beloved crab spiders, at least for now. And I think the common thread has always been my interest in the evolution of animals' reproductive behavior. And once you start looking at animals' reproductive behavior, you're one step away from looking at why do males look different than females. Mm. 
That seems like it's key. I uh, I sort of want to take, I kind of want to dig into spiders just a little bit more. I'm really curious because I do field work too. And I, you know, I like looking for small things and spiders seem like pretty tiny things. So, you know, how do you find them? You know, what are you looking for? I, I, I just want to learn a little bit more about field work. And maybe before you start, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what field work is. Like, why is it important to even do field work in the first place? I have done many different types of field work. But in general, for an organismal biologist, for someone who studies animals, doing field work is the best way to observe animals in their natural environment. Especially if you're interested in animal behavior, this is your chance to see how are animals behaving in their natural environment, in their natural surroundings, how do they interact with each other in nature. Once you take these animals from the field and you bring them back to the laboratory, there are many things that uh, become much easier, but you can never replicate the exact conditions of the field in an indoors or even outdoors. They're just so unique, they're so complex, they can't be recreated. So in order to understand how are these animals behaving in nature, how are they relating to one another in their natural environment, you have to do field work and you have to go observe these animals where they are actually found. Once you know that, then you can bring them to the lab and do all sorts of manipulations and try to recreate different environments. But doing field work and actually seeing these animals where they are naturally found is a very good, not the only one, but it's a very good first step in understanding how and why are these animals the way they are. And so the crab spiders, that the swift crab spiders that you study, where are they found? And can you describe like their habitat and where you do your field work? These are spiders that are found throughout the Midwest. And they don't come as far as California, but they come pretty far uh, west. Um, they are flower dwelling so that means that they are typically found associated with flowers in the field in nebraska where i did my phd and where i did most of my field work with them they're found in the prairie more specifically in the tall grass prairie so this is an environment that is actually very threatened nowadays by agricultural practices these are huge extenses of relatively flat land with uh, tall grasses as the name indicates so this is an environment that goes from looking like a dead abandoned field in the winter to a beautiful mosaic of grasses and wildflowers in the beautiful. summer. It is absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> At first, I, I was used to doing field work in the rainforest. So my first impression was like, oh, this is boring. And I, I was wrong. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, and so... These spiders are during the spring and the summer and part of the fall, they're typically found on top of flowers. So after some time, you, you really have to go and look at almost every flower uh, in order to find them. After some time, you actually know how to, sometimes you can see them from a distance, you make a search image for them. When I needed to collect them in very big numbers, what I actually did was cheat a little bit. And I had what we call bead sheets, which are basically a big square of fabric held by a, a big X of wood. And I would hold that under a bush of wildflowers and just shake the wildflowers on top of it. Mm -hmm. 
and the spiders would just fall from the flowers onto that piece of fabric and I could easily catch them. Mm. So that's what I would do when I actually needed not so much to observe them, but just to collect large numbers. To just shake them on a sheet. Exactly. That's great. Exactly. Mm. Just like we do with, what is it, mulberries or something like that, mm, like yeah. with some trees. <laughs> exactly the same principle. Now, although normally their environment is in Nebraska, the tall grass prairie and in other places, of course, wildflowers, they're also found in anywhere that has flowers. So I had some in the rose bushes in my garden. There were some in the middle of town, like in petunia planters in front of a Starbucks. And sometimes there would be one there, completely lost, poor thing, but they would be there anyways. (laughs) So they can be pretty easy to collect in the sense that they are fairly widespread once the flowers bloom. In the fall, they just completely disappear. As soon as it starts to get very cold, and Nebraska has bitterly cold winters, around the first frost, they will go, before the first first frost actually, they will go underground, hide among the roots of the prairie plants, and stay there until early spring, when the ground thaws and they will come back up. So we could never see any during the late fall and winter. And then in the spring, as soon as the first dandelion was out, there was a crab spider on top of it. So I would just literally keep an eye out for flowers. <laughs> and when there were flowers, I knew there were spiders and it was time to head out to the field. <laughs> Great. That's a, thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, you were mentioning about the, I mean, we're talking about flowers quite a bit. And you mentioned before how the crab spiders use flowers as a hunting ground. Are there any sort of other relationships that they have with flowers? It seems like it's really important to them. It is very important to them. Crab spiders will fold a leaf and kind of seal the sides of that folded leaf with silk and lay their eggs inside. And they actually choose plants that are more likely to be attracting pollinators by the time that their babies hatch from the eggs and start needing food. Mm. So it's important not only as a hunting ground for the larger individuals, but also the females choose where they're going to lay their eggs in order to maximize the chances that their babies will have food when they actually hatch from the eggs. Another thing that is very interesting about crab spiders that prey on flowers is that some other researchers, not myself, have shown doing a bunch of experiments in the field and in the lab that the males are actually able to recognize the scent of flowers and When given the choice between going to a female spider, a paper flower, or a natural wildflower, they will not go towards the female, as you would imagine, but rather towards the flower. Wow, so cool. So the flowers are also probably used in the whole process of finding a mate, which, as you can imagine, for an animal that small, can be pretty daunting in an environment as complex as the prairie. So I kind of want to take the conversation back to behavior, which is where we sort of started. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the behavior of males finding females, females laying eggs. But how do these behaviors play a role in the size of the organism? One of the things that I have looked at is the relationship between the size of the females and uh, how many eggs are they actually able to lay. So see if there is a relationship between the female's fecundity and their size. Fecundity in this case would simply be how many eggs can a female produce. So the females, let's think of it as her reproductive potential. 
So I wanted to see if there was a relationship between size and fecundity in Mechafisa cellar. And I was actually very surprised to see that uh, there doesn't seem to be one, which is very intriguing and one of the first things that actually puzzled me about this system. Another thing that I was interested in testing was to see if small males had perhaps a better chance of convincing a female to mate than a large male. In most cases, females would tend to prefer larger males. But in these species, the males are really small. So I was interested in seeing if there is actually a reverse preference of females preferring smaller males. And by preferring smaller males, smaller males would reproduce more often and their genes for small males will actually become more frequent in the population and so on. And I actually found that size has nothing to do with the probability of being chosen by a female because these females have no mate choice whatsoever which is quite surprising for any species, in particular for a spider species. These females will basically mate with whatever male is presented to them, as long as they're still virgin. Once they mated once, they will become much more selective. But again, size has nothing to do with the chances of being chosen. How can a spider tell that another spider is a virgin? In crab spiders, they actually can't until the female tries to eat them, and then they can just run away, and they know that the female wasn't virgin. Uh, Do we know why? Like, is it because is it like a like a harass like in like is it a mating harassment thing? Like, oh yeah, like I don't want to be mated with. Yeah, I don't want to be mated with anymore. I'm gonna eat yep. you. Yep. Okay. I oh, think that is exactly cool. what it is. I don't need you anymore. You are now a prey item and not a interesting mate okay it's so cool to hear that these little tiny spiders have such complex decision making processes exactly you know i'm sitting here and listening to you talk and i'm just baffled by how intricate their decisions are yeah on a day-to-day basis yeah exactly and it's not i don't want to give the impression that these are that they're actually thinking about what they're going to do. This is all, uh, their brains are very, very simple. This Mm -hmm. is all very binary. It's it's instinct. So I don't want to make them sound like humans that are actually debating about life and choosing what would be the best next boyfriend or something like that. It's, It's something much more, much simpler than that. Yeah. And how those decisions play out in the way that these organisms look and how they look completely different. Like if you see a female of this species next to a male, they almost look like two different spiders. Like if I saw them, not being a spider biologist, I would say, oh, those are two different things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that that's actually something that happened a lot in, in the 1800s or when natural history mm-hmm. started becoming uh, more popular. A lot of highly sexually dimorphic species were initially described as two different species. So is it still a mystery in the crab spiders? We still don't know why the males are so tiny and the females are so large? I am starting to have some ideas. I think it has to do with being able to mature at the right time in the season. I think it has to do with not needing as much food as you grow up so that you it's easier to grow up if your adult size is small. But uh, it's most definitely still a mystery. I'm just starting to get some hints here and there. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think it's not that they are a unique system is that we have a tendency as scientists and as uh, organismal biologists to study more and publish more 
the things that are positive. We mm. seldom see scientific papers with negative results. We, we tend to talk more about the things that worked perfectly well. And so I am certain that there are countless species that are just as hard to understand as crab spiders. It's just that we don't really want to study them. We want to go for the ones that give the fastest and most satisfying results, the ones for which we already have a bigger basis of knowledge so we can quickly get to the super interesting question that will give us a lot of money and a high-impact paper. And I think if we start digging and looking more in detail at other species and just starting from the ground up, I think... Nothing is as simple as the big classic theories want us to believe. It's far more complicated than biology textbooks would like us to believe. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And I think in that complicated messiness is the beauty, like, of, it. The beauty of it. Exactly. And like how you said, like you're an integrative biologist. You're looking at their physiology, their behavior, their color, everything to, to understand why they look the way they do. What are some insights that you've had over the course of your career that you'd like to share? I think the most important insight I got over the course of my career is not to be excessively disappointed by negative results. Negative results are normal. They are a healthy part of science. They help us learn. They help us reshape our questions. They motivate our next questions and they are far too often brushed aside and yes sometimes negative results are due to a flaw in our method or our sample size that was too small but sometimes they're just due to the fact that what we thought was obvious is actually not obvious and those are the most interesting questions in my opinion and start deconstructing a lot of the big theories in behavior are still very tainted by sexism Mm. which is something that is now being more and more observed. The whole females are shy and choosy and the males are more aggressive and they have to be the ones doing the first move. That is just romanticism. That is like that in some species, but not in the vast majority of them. And that is just one example that has been quite widely publicized, but that applies to a lot of things that we tend to believe are universal truth. And there is no such thing in biology. Kind of going off that, what keeps you curious? This is going to sound incredibly cliche, but... uh, Do it. (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) I am actually going to go on the radio saying that nature keeps me curious. Yeah, maybe. As soon as you start looking at something into more detail, perhaps all the questions you have have already been answered. And that's actually the most common. When you know nothing about a system, the first questions that pop to your head will probably already have been answered. But that sparks curiosity. So I think my main takeaway message is to find something that really fascinates you. The rest will come naturally. Thank you. So differences between the sexes in size, color, and behavior seems like an obvious thing. But there are still a lot of unknowns in how this phenomenon evolves in different species. In crab spiders, females are much larger, and we're still trying to figure out why. This has been Radio Bio with Dr. Hellini. Thanks for listening. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group.
and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.